Hello, everybody. Welcome to Mental Health TV. Really lovely to have you with us tonight. Um, wave to Vanessa, who's not very well, not with us tonight, but we've, she's been replaced, if you can imagine such a thing, with Dave. So um, we'll go around and we'll introduce everybody in a moment. Um, tonight, we're going to be talking about the experiences of living with mental health problems during the COVID-19 pandemic, obviously in the UK. Um, so we really want to hear from you. We really want you to join in. Um, I'll just introduce you to Dave, because you may not have seen him lurking behind the uh, camera before. Dave, can you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about how people can join in? Hi, everyone. I'm Dave Monday. I work with the United Union in the health sector, and I am normally behind the scenes sorting out MHTV production-wise, uh, while it's ably led by Nikki and Vanessa front of camera. Uh, as Nikki said, Vanessa can't make it tonight, and we're wishing her well. So get well soon, Vanessa. Hope you're watching, even though you're unwell. You know, you should be watching this. <laughs> Uh, yes, yeah, so if you want to get involved tonight, there's a couple of different ways you can do it. One of them is you can comment on the Facebook live stream. Uh, and obviously, we'll try and bring in as many comments as we can into the conversation, and I'll be doing that. The other way that you can comment is via Twitter. And what you need to do to make sure that we can see the tweets is to use the hashtag, hashtag MHTV. So over to you, Nikki. Okay, so we'll go around and introduce our fantastic panel to you. So first of all, Una, would you like to just let people know who you are? Hello, I'm Una Foy and I work at King's College London across the LPPN and with the Faculty of Mental Health Nursing, primarily with Alan Simpson. I'm a researcher. Mm -hmm. Kerry, hello. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, yourself, I'm Kerry? Kerry. Um, I'm uh, working with University College um, London. Um, I uh, lived experience researcher with background in public health. Fantastic, thank you, Rachel. Hey, uh, yeah, like Kerry, I'm on the uh, lived experience working group for the policy research unit at UCL, um, and do various other bits of research, consulting, training type things in mental health. Thank you very much. And Bryn. Hi, everyone. I'm Bryn Lloyd-Evans. I'm an academic in the Division of Psychiatry at UCL. I'm also a social worker and did work in CMHTs in a previous phase of working life a, a while ago now. Um, and I'm one of the deputy directors of the Mental Health Policy Research Unit, which is the organisation that did the work we're going to talk about tonight. That's fantastic. So it makes sense, doesn't it, to start off actually just finding out a little bit more about that? So can you tell us yeah. about the Mental Health Policy Research Unit? Great, thank you. Yeah, so um, we're an organisation that is sort of jointly based between UCL and King's and also University of Birmingham. And um, we were set up about three years ago. We were kind of commissioned by the National Institute of Health Research for the Department of Health and Social Care. And basically, I think the point of the, the PRU is our jargon, so I might slip into that, but the Mental Health Policy Research Unit was to be a kind of research resource that's there on tap for the Department of Health and mm. NHS England and so on to use if they require it for they need some research fairly rapidly or there are kind of unanticipated demands. So we've been going for three years. We've got a sort of research team and we've got a, a team of 12 lived experience researchers who work with us on all the projects as well, of whom Kerry and Rachel are, are two members, as they were saying. Um, and the sort of things we can do is we try and provide a rapid response, which that's a kind of research rapid, which is more at the kind of tortoise than the greyhound end of the spectrum. But um, but we can do things like try and get a sort of brief summary for a civil servant or put them in touch with an expert in a day or two. Or we do research that typically takes months rather than years, at least, to sort of try and meet a need. 
So, for example, when Theresa May announced the Mental Health Act Review at the Tory party conference back in 2017, we were a kind of resource that was there to be able to, to provide some research to support the review team in that work and could get going on that fairly rapidly. And the COVID pandemic is another example of that. That's something that no one could anticipate, mm -hmm. but there's a kind of pressing need to try and understand how has that impacted mental health services and the people who use them. Yeah. And so we were kind of asked by the Department of Health to do a, a programme of work on the impact of COVID and, on mental health services, which has so mm. far involved a staff mm. survey, a sort of evidence review. We're going to do some more focused work on remote working in particular and look at that. And yeah. what we're going to talk about today is this project interviewing people with mental health conditions about their experiences of, of COVID. Um, and I should just mention as the last thing on this is that this is a kind of joint collaboration with the UKRI Loneliness Network, who yeah. are also sort of based with us in UCL, but we kind mm. of hijacked a, a, an interview project they already had get going so that we could rapidly get access to some people to ask about COVID. And the two teams have kind of merged into a happy fusion really during the project. So mm. Yeah, fantastic work they do. Really interesting stuff as well. A kind of public mental health thing is really something that's I think getting into a lot of curriculums now is really, really important for us to be thinking of. But I think cycling back to the work that you've done, one of the key things about it has been it's that it's been done properly co-productively. And I think I'd really like to come to maybe um uh, services people who've used services with lived experience if they want to talk a little bit about co-production and what, what that experience of being um researching was like yeah yes Kerry and I can jump in on that um so I don't know how much of a how much of a kind of background in this area people watching have I guess there's going to be quite a range so if I'm saying stuff that people know bear with me but there's kind of like a there's kind of a spectrum of research in terms of how it uses lived experience of service use and of mental health problems in that you can have what's often called user-led or survivor research, where the people with lived experience are kind of calling all of the shots. And then at the other end of the spectrum, there's sort of limited involvement where you do things like review participant information sheets and you're basically there to uh, help recruit participants on somebody mm -hmm. else's agenda. Mm -hmm. um, and the idea of co-production, I guess, is that it's somewhere in the middle. Um, where, I mean, in theory, you have an even split of power. I think it's very rare for that to be, things to be exactly 50-50. But, um, so, but in on this project, so we were involved in um, kind of helping write the, the interview schedule and in actually carrying out the interviews and then, uh, was quite important was um analyzing them with a kind of way that we coded them was a really participatory method where we sort of um so we had a much larger pool of lived experience mm. researchers who were doing the interviews because it was quite a big project um and then a kind of smaller core group where we so we would kind of do some work on coding the transcripts that for, for themes that had come up and then we'd go back to the bigger group of lived experience people and say does this make sense for what was coming up in your interviews does that read okay to you and then we come back mm. as a smaller group and modify things and so it was kind of a best back and forth process of um mm. so it wasn't just relying on one person's lived experience it was like collective um 
So that, I think that was quite important. I guess um, the way that it was quite different to some projects that you might be working in an experienced capacity on was that it was both experience of mental health problems and also this experience of the pandemic that we're all living through like in real time. Um, so whereas say if you're doing some research on something that you have experience of like crisis services, you might experience a crisis while you're doing that research, but you're probably not necessarily in crisis the whole time. And it's not necessarily unfolding in real time while you're doing that same research. Um, so that was, that was different and it had pros and cons <laughs> in that you kind of have to think quite carefully about how that influences the way that you interact with the people that you're interviewing and how that influences the way that you do your analysis. Um, but it, yeah, no, it was, it was certainly interesting. Um, I don't know if mm. Kerry wants to come in and add stuff. Yeah, absolutely. What do you think, Kerry? Yeah, and as Rachel was saying, it's quite unusual to sort of be going through the same experiences at the same time as your participants. Um, Double a step away, something like that happened. But obviously, pandemic, it's happening to everyone. By that, mm. quite challenging. Um, it was a bit unusual the way some of this was done because it was working in a crisis situation. Um, so, for example, as Brim was saying earlier, we'd, um, we were basically using a set of measures and adapting a project that was already mostly approved and ready to go about loneliness and then mm. adapting it on the fly. So I don't know how much of the earlier loneliness project content was co-produced but we kind of had to work with what we got um, um, and we had some input on shaping the interviews but you know doing everything in a hurry um, and then um, interviews were all carried out by people with lived experience which I think is can be quite important um, yeah. I think to get you to go people know who well you know I I don't like talking about this pe with people it's something I feel ashamed of it's something I feel difficult to talk about or who are maybe a bit more ready to talk if you say you say no no I've been there too hmm. yeah it makes a difference I don't it? know about you Kerry but um I always find it's kind of a slightly weird balancing act knowing how much to disclose to people when you're interviewing them hmm. um and how much to say kind of about your own stuff because you don't want the interview to be about you, mm. but also you want to kind of show, uh, you want to kind of be empathetic and if you don't disclose anything, then what's the point in doing it from a lived experience perspective? You see what I mean? It's kind of, kind of a balance you have to feel your way through in each situation. I agree. I think that's something that a lot of kind of people who are collecting information qualitatively, you know, looking at kind of people's stories, people's narratives, people's experiences, they do that dance, don't they, between how much is you and how much do you need to make that person feel comfortable in order to tell them about them. So it's 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 a lot going on there. So I think we'll come back to that co-production thing because it seems to me like the, the key to what you've done, really. But I wonder if I could just come to Una briefly. Um, just a bit about remote researching, because I think that's another layer 
of the work that you've mm. done that, that comes into it as well. And it, and it's all new to all of us. And I think yeah. that's what's really interesting is that as as the researcher who was kind of a coordinator and a facilitating some of the putting together of things, it was really lovely to know that we had that lived experience research team who would do the interviews while people like myself would kind of deal with the tech side and the team side because mm. recently I've had to do interviews on teams and if something goes wrong you're trying to keep your cool and be like hey, yeah it's, it's all cool it's all grand it's, all, it's fine whereas you're actually going oh my god it's not working it's not working and I think that was a really nice balance that we had when doing this research was that we were all learning together but it meant that at least you know we were in it together as well so that we could be doing that remote side of recording and saving and that sort of thing alongside someone actually being almost like at the forefront and being the table face so to speak you know if mm. you're in a restaurant mm. and I think it's just been really interesting and to bring that forward and how do we share data and thinking about how we do coding remotely rather than all getting into a room and it's been a really challenging experience but such a good learning curve and I think because mm. we're all just thrown into this together it's such mm. a new field for us all to do things remotely. I think it would be really useful as well because we've said a few things that maybe some people won't um won't completely follow so things like coding so can anybody explain quite what we mean when we're talking about coding? So I suppose I, I would probably say it's kind of taking the research data and the transcripts of those interviews and making sense of them within mm. analysis, but it's kind of making sense and pulling out core things, the mm. things that are interesting mm. and things that are meaningful, because a lot mm. of the time you might just waffle on and talk about nothing, but there are going to be things that are really important and it's about pulling those important things together and discussing them as a group and in mm. the context of everything. So how did you decide what was important then, Ben, as you're, you've all got such different experiences and you're all really far away. Some of you might not have even met each other face to face in that group. How did you how did you accomplish that? I'm going to let someone else jump in because I've yeah, hogged it for a while. It's <laughs> fine, yeah. I guess with a lot of um, negotiation mm -hmm. and a lot of um, kind of back and forth, um, so we started out with kind of lots of different people just going through back over interviews that they'd done and mm -hmm. thinking of say three or four things that seemed like the really key points mm -hmm. and then we brought all of those together um, to try and draw those into kind of broader see which which ones fit together under broader headings mm -hmm. um, and that was kind of our starting place for this I guess what in research terms you would call an iterative process mm. of um yeah going back and forth and refining and mm. new interviews and seeing were there things that were in those interviews that really didn't fit in the codes that we already had mm. um basically doing that until we reached a point either where we were like okay we have to get something written now mm -hmm. or where we felt like we had kind of divided up all of the key material in as far mm. as that's ever possible. Mm. I think it might help. So if we th can we think about one of the themes maybe that you you looked at? I think you've looked at some stuff around kind of relationships and connections. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. Anybody? Yeah. 
God, I thought I'm talking loads. So if other people want to jump in, do. But that, I mean, that was one of the, one of the bits that I wrote up. So yeah, um, go for it. Also, happy to talk about it. Sorry, there's just I live on a main road and there's a um, siren going past. Um, yeah. So we, we, yeah, one of these things that came up were kind of relationships and connections and disconnections that people had. So. Um, Obviously, everybody, whether they have mental health problems or not, has relationships in their lives, and those have been inevitably affected by the pandemic. Um, and so some of the ways that our interviewees were affected were sort of similar to the rest of the population, I guess, in that some people mm. moved in with family, some people moved out, some people saw a lot more of their partners, and uh, yeah. some saw much less of them. Mm. Um, but the, all of those issues as a whole were kind of heightened by the experience of having existing mental health problems. So um, if someone was already lonely and depressed, then they were likely to feel more lonely or like, so for instance, we had um, one example who we quoted in the paper who said that they, uh, their family were fasting for Ramadan, but they were on a, uh, very specific medication timetable, which meant that they had to get up at a time when their family was asleep because of the timetable they were on. Mm. Um, so, but then there were also some quite unique relationships that people have if you have experience of mental health problems and or using services in that there's a whole set of therapeutic relationships. Mm. Um which were obviously massively affected by the pandemic and which some people mm. some people lost those relationships entirely because they didn't have the privacy at home or they didn't have good enough digital connection to keep those up. Um, a couple of people who uh, kind of described their problems either as paranoid thoughts or as kind of unusual beliefs said that they found video calls really, really difficult. Um, and that obviously was something that affected their relationships because mm. of their experience with their mental health that the majority of the population didn't mm. have such an issue with. Mm. Um, and also something that came up was people really uh, struggling to kind of make space to talk about their mental health the way that they might do in mm. normal times because everybody has so much going on. So it's harder to talk about oh, actually, I'm really, really anxious if the person you're talking to has just lost their job or is self-employed and can't get on the furlough scheme or like even with clinical staff, it mm. kind of some people felt like they were like, well, my social worker's just firefighting all the time mm. and I don't have space to kind of do the therapeutic work that I really need to. Mm. So there was a lot going on in terms of mm. people's relationships, basically. <laughs> Sounds like it. Sounds like it. So we're starting to get questions through as well. I've got I've got a doozy for the uh, researchers here coming at you. <laughs> um, so um, we've got a fantastic one. I, I can't see who it's from. I think um, Shielding G. Um, is research often thought up by professionals to prove their theories? It's come to grin on that one. <laughs> and then you can tell us a little bit about you know how you came to do um, the interviews, how you found people. But but first of all, is are, are you making all this up? <laughs> yeah, 
Improve your secret theories. It's a fair <laughs> challenge, isn't it? I don't yeah. think it would be, it, it would be um, yeah, not actually. But it's about how, how, how information happens, it's about how research happens. And I think it's really mysterious to a lot of people, isn't yeah. it? Because it seems like you ask a question, then you have a theory. And if you don't see all the steps between, I think that's what mm. we're going to get into. Mm. It can look like it's just arrived. Just I so. Think- one of the nice things about qualitative research, about the sort of interviews we did, so we, we talked mm. to sort of uh, 49, nearly 50 people with mental health conditions, but it was, mm. we didn't come at this with a kind of a hypothesis in our heads that we were seeking to prove as you might in a trial. Mm. So the, the kind of questions we asked in the interviews were certainly the topic guide, the starting questions were pretty broad about, so how have you been finding it, you know, in this in this strange time with the pandemics. And, and I think the way we approached the analysis as well was a bit more jargon was to take a kind of inductive approach to analysis where we started trying to look at the interviews we got and work out what people were telling us and what the themes were coming from it from a sort of blank slate rather mm. than starting with a kind of idea in our heads and trying to shoehorn or see how well what people fitted with the mm. idea we got. So I, I hope no one's immune to coming at things with your own preconceptions about and we've all got our take on COVID and what matters, haven't we really? Mm. But um but I think hopefully a strength of having a big team as well mm. is that it it kind of slightly dilutes those idiosyncrasies that we will all bring to what we've heard. Mm. And I, I guess mm. kind of one of the things that I've I've really learned over qualitative research is that what I think I've heard from a conversation or what somebody is saying isn't necessarily what my colleagues will all think as well and that it's much more of a kind of subjective process than that and I think having this kind of quite big team and quite a diverse team involved in the project hopefully gave some sort of um yeah sort of uh would minimize the chances of that one person going off on one with an idea they'd already got and trying to prove it really yeah and I think it's really important that in the context of the research side there so it's a very new field because COVID didn't exist last year. So it's really interesting that then the reviews that have been coming out and literature that is happening, these surveys that are happening, I think, can very much be, you know, having that kind of bias. And I think this research came out of the fact that there was lots of stuff saying, oh, everyone's got mental health problems now because everyone's anxious about COVID and we're all in this together and stuff. And there was a massive gap there within all the stuff that was being talked about on TV and the literature that's coming out. No one was really talking about what people with pre-existing mental health conditions were experiencing. Mm-hmm. So I think that to go in and do a piece of quality of research with any pre-existing question would have been really stupid on our behalf mm-hmm. because I think it would have had that bias. And I, I and I would hope that the lived experience researchers would have called out the, the non-lived experience researchers if that had happened. And I mm-hmm. well believe that our team yeah. would have because we have a good relationship. <laughs> So I would hope so, yeah. but then I'm not a clinician. So. <laughs> so I think one of the things you're talking about, you know, the fact that you're all experiencing this this separation, you're all going through COVID at the same time. Um, but we've seen also a lot in the news about people who were excluded digitally. So how did you guys manage that kind of conundrum? With difficulty. We didn't. I mean, the participants were recruited by social media, and this is something I feel very strongly about. Mm. We have to be absolutely we're looking at a small selection of the population mm. and coming back to what I think someone said earlier about um, you know, mental health conditions in themselves can be something which disables people from accessing online things, 
particularly a lot around psychosis and paranoia um, when people can find it really difficult to you know be around technology to use technology um, learning disabilities stuffy um, only being available in the English language and so forth um, yeah it's something we have to be very aware of when mm. applying our results particularly since um with um the research is funded by the department of health and social care and they specifically asked us to look about the good things about going digital which i'm a bit cynical about in the cost saving measure so mm. well i think that that's the context to, to it isn't it you've got to be able to think those things and actually say them as well otherwise your research becomes lopsided absolutely so when you're saying how you found people to interview, obviously you use social media. How did you go about that? Did you just ask people? Did you put an advert out? Did you call your friends? <laughs> well, I wouldn't say friends, <laughs> but we did basically put an advert out um, and sort of who people responded. responded. Um, we did do, I guess, quite a lot of work also with... Um, kind of community organisations that we might be in touch with um, to try and make sure that we weren't uh, only getting people who were active on social media. But I think, as mm. Kerry said, like we have to be really honest about mm. the fact that our sample was like by the nature of the research that we were doing, it was only going to be people who were comfortable with a certain mm. level of technology. Like mm. I live in a housing project and um, some of like some of my neighbours don't have a phone, like let alone mm. being up for Microsoft Teams, you know, mm. like, so I could kind of chat to my housing provider and be like, do you fancy maybe putting our poster around? But, if someone doesn't have a phone, they're not going to send an email to UCL mm. saying, yeah, sure, I'll do your study. Like, and I think, it, yeah, it is really important that mm. we're clear about that and mm. that there are a whole load of people who have really major needs and who are going to have been really impacted by this that whose views we, we haven't captured and that is a big mm. limitation and we shouldn't take this as the only evidence that's required on this issue. Mm. I think it's like the first sort of step in sort of really noticing how um, is that things that same storm, different boats for everybody, that really unequal experience. I wondered if any of you wanted to particularly, before we go back to questions, if any of you wanted to talk a little bit about some of your findings around inequality in COVID? I think that digital exclusion is probably a really big one that we've got. Mm. And I think that it's important in itself that limitation is highlighted from this work because if services are going remote as well, that almost by us highlighting, well, there's an irony in us trying to recruit people through online teams kind of approaches. Mm -hmm. That that also reflects what services might be having as well in terms of marginalised mm -hmm. groups. We we did actually have two participants who were homeless that took part, and I think that is one group that is often excluded from research completely and to even understand that getting that mm. phone as rachel said can be difficult charging it being able yeah. to access those things it, mm. it further marginalizes people and then as well as carrie pointed out that mm. you know it 
on Zoom, it's, it's not the same. And if someone with psychosis who doesn't have trust in mm. technology or yeah. older people who maybe don't trust. I know my, my in-laws wouldn't be the most comfortable with using the likes of Zoom. I'm really sorry, Marion, if you're watching. But <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's things like that that you kind of take for granted that we know how to do these things or we can come to terms with it. Whereas if you're just not that comfortable, you probably see someone, even that relational stuff. And the inequalities, even in terms of um, ethnic minorities mm. and kind of people who are already marginalised within our mental health services, for example, mm. black yeah. communities, we already see that there's higher restrictive practices, higher inpatient admissions in those groups, and that that's only going to get more extreme if we are going to continue to have kind of barriers and. And marginalized groups within even within our mental health services never mind within everybody on the same page you know mm, mm. so when we're all in it together it, it it's not necessarily all in it together Indeed. we're not you know <laughs> yeah yeah did anyone else want to add to that just maybe one of the things that despite the challenges that actually trying to do all this remotely gave us i think you know we we did we were able through kind of community organizations to get to some people certainly who we would have missed just through Twitter. So St. Mongo's, for instance, were really helpful. And one of yeah. our colleagues, Josephine Oakley, who's very well networked with um, fame community groups in South London, helped us recruit from there. And we got a pretty good diverse sample, although there are some particular groups we will have missed, like people who are just really digitally excluded, as we're, as we're saying. Yeah. But I think what we did here from our sample was kind of really a kind of couple of big ways in which the kind of impacts of COVID were, were unequal. And, and I guess kind of one fundamental thing is that a lot of the kind of challenges from COVID that people talk to us about are not so different from the challenges that everyone experiences. So, you know, we're all worried about COVID infection and miss friends and find the kind of social distancing in public spaces difficult and stressful. Mm -hmm. But I guess the kind of point that came through loud and clear from our interviews is that if you're starting from a place of vulnerability, the impact of these additional stresses can be really great. So, you know, for instance, going down the local shop and trying to sort of navigate the one-way system and not bump into people and yeah. is somebody with a mask trying to talk to you or whatever, those things are kind of stressful and a bit anxiety provoking. But if you're already starting from a place of really high social anxiety and finding it hard to get out and navigate those things, then that can be the thing that actually just makes it impossible for you to get out and get your shopping and make your basic needs or the stress of doing so has a really big impact on you and, and is, which is deleterious to your mental health and mm. similarly if you're if you've got a kind of very hard learnt kind of routine of activities that help with your managing your mental health condition then if that's mm. disrupted and you can't get to the gym or whatever it is that really helps yeah. you get to a kind of good place then that's a more serious downside than the irritation it might be for other people who are not using that in the way to sort of manage it an existing mental health conditions. So, so those are a couple of ways that the same yeah. similar stresses can have an un, unequal impact for people with mental health problems generally. Um, Absolutely. And then perhaps the sort of second big thing was just within the group of people with mental health pro problems, even the, the people we talked to, the impact is not felt equally. So some groups are disproportionately affected and we you know, were sort of talking about ethnicity. So we've had black respondents talking to us about actually people see the news, people know they're at higher risk of getting COVID or the outcomes are less good when you do get it. And so you're, that's obviously worrying. 
and people told us about experiencing stigma and discrimination with people being rude in public with thinking that they're going to get infected by somebody because of their ethnicity and those things are kind of make mm. the experience of living through this pandemic more stressful mm. Um, mm. social economic status is another one where there's obviously a kind of big intersectionality with with ethnicity as well but kind of if you're not well off, then some of the challenges of, of COVID are harder, really. So, you know, kind of if you haven't got your internet connection to do an internet shop or you haven't got your car to go and do a fortnightly shop, then you have to go down to the supermarket and face these kind of difficult things every other day to get some food that you can bring home. Um, if you've got no reserves of money, no savings, then obviously if your job goes, then it's immediately a, a problem. And those kind of things are tough for people. And again, if that's overlaid on existing vulnerabilities from a mental health condition, that's tough. Um, and mm. physical illness was the other one that was really important and came through in our, mm. uh, I think, our interviews. So, for instance, somebody whose kind of biopsies and tests were postponed, who's just very, mm. very worried about the kind of risks of cancer and so on, and that's on top of existing anxiety, or somebody talking about working remotely in their work adaptations that they had for their physical disability they couldn't bring them home so that's then a new challenge that most people don't have so mm. and even within people with mental health conditions there are some groups who are disproportionately kind of feeling the sort of challenges and the stresses that covid brings mm. and that came through pretty clearly i think in our our interviews such a so much to think about isn't there already um i wonder if um, we could go to dave for a couple of questions that are coming in i can see Absolutely. And just before that, I just wanted to pick up on the digital exclusion point. Mm. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to reading uh, the research that you've collected around that, yeah. uh, especially because of my day job, uh, actually kind of witnessing uh, services now being further cut than they already had been, because the arguments from management that actually digital has been a roaring success, and therefore we don't need as many staff. Uh, and, you know, it's quite depressing and distressing to see that uh, because we do know that, you know, in, in, in certain circumstances, that is just an absolute Trojan horse for, you know, cutting even more to the bone the services that are available. Uh, just coming to a couple of questions. Uh, the first one is from Ben Hannigan, which I don't know if I am going to ask because he's trolling you, uh, Bryn, for not being on Twitter. So, uh, you know, <laughs> cheeky Ben Hannigan. Uh, but this question, which is a good question, so we'll let this one through. Uh, given that you were interviewing people about sensitive issues and doing so online, have you any advice for other researchers embarking on similar projects? I think Rachel and Carrie did most of the interviewing, so I think they should answer them. Honestly, it's something that worried me a lot. Um, I've done a fair bit of sensitive interviewing before um, around around all sorts of topics. Um, and uh, my last round of qualitative in interviewing, the one as our participants died by suicide, but that was a, a pretty awful experience for everyone involved. Um, so uh, yeah, going into this, I've been pretty anxious about that particularly given that we were doing this in a time when there were what a lot of the services that would usually be available weren't available. Um, I guess set against that, I hope that doing the interviews at least gave people, they're not therapy, but they at least gives people a chance to talk about what they were, what 
what they wanted to talk about and listen. And like personally, I generally tried to find a a positive way to end the interview. Try and talk to people about you know what they what they're doing next, what they've got coming up, that sort of thing. Yeah, I think those are, I would second what Kerry said. Um, I think, so this is something that I've kind of, I'm now planning some research of my own for my university studies, which is to make it COVID proof is also going to have to be um, mm-hmm. online. So I have been kind of thinking about um, what I've learned from this to take forward to that. Um, I think like be really careful with your ethics and make sure that you have that you take what goes to the ethics committee as like the starting point for your ethical reflection rather than the end point of it which is something that I sort of think of as quite important in research generally um you can do things like give uh give people resources to um you know places that they can contact uh the infamous resources list that everybody always hands out into their participants but if you do that one of the things that's really important is like that was something which the lived experience researchers fed into and you know like had experience of using particular services so like if you're going to signpost people make sure that you give them phone numbers that still work and like services that are actually running and not just like the crisis team number and the Samaritans because people wouldn't know about those. Um, Hmm. And we did, so in terms of the researchers ourselves, we had like a reflective space where we could go Hmm. if we wanted to and discuss what, like if there was anything difficult that had come up in our interviews, um, which I sort of dipped in and out of and was, was quite handy from time to time. And um, so if you're working in a big team, that's worth thinking about because I think often if you're, particularly if you're a lived experience researcher, you're often sort of outside of the formal university structures where you would have kind of supervision and feedback meetings and a clear structure of who you would take it to if there was stuff that was difficult. Um, so I think that's quite important, thinking mm. that through. But beyond that, I mean, I think... You, you have to be serious about your ethics and you have to be serious about data protection stuff. Um, and I think it's really worth taking part in other research projects so that you can, like, if you don't have experience of having severe mental health problems, it's not going to be the same experience taking part in a research project, but you can get like a rough idea of what it feels like to give up some of your data to somebody you don't know. Um, But after that, I think you you have to be confident in your consent procedures and be confident that people understand what they're getting into. And then I think you have to trust that. That's where I've come to on it. Personally, I do worry a lot about kind of accidentally harming people through research. Um, but yeah, the, the position that I've come to is you think through everything as much as you possibly can and you take the mitigating steps that are realistic and you are clear in your communication with people so that they understand what you're doing, they understand where their information is going to go, 
they understand what you can and can't promise about things like anonymity, the potential for them being identified from any reports and stuff like that. And then you trust that people take that information and say yes or no on the basis of what you communicate to them, I think. Logistically, have a second recorder because things can go wrong with teams. Always. <laughs> <laughs> Having lost a whole transcript, things can go wrong with teams. So have a double recorder. That's my advice. Always. I can't even focus if I don't have two sets of recordings, particularly one where I can yeah. see that the light's going up and down. So it's definitely on and I can relax. <laughs> I think one of the things that's really difficult as the researcher doing the interviews in any qualitative project is that people often share a lot of their lives with you and you, you kind of you hear all this and then often that's the end of your contact with people so you don't know how that's left the person or how it works out for them and, and kind of a couple of things that um, well one which we put in place was just a, a, a brief check-in a couple of days after with a researcher that somebody could ask for which was really we were not offering help again at that point we had the limits of our role but we, we had this resources but but the other thing about this project was that it's a, a longitudinal project. So we offer people another interview. It was three months after the first one. And I guess kind of one thing which now reassures me is that so many people have kind of um, taken up that second interview, which kind of suggests that at least it was a kind of an okay experience the first time. So they're, they're back. But also the feedback from some of the interviewers that I've had is that people are often choosing to share sort of a bit more on the second one so I guess kind of people make their choices about what they feel comfortable sharing in these kind of sensitive areas as well and, mm. and it's been quite a nice thing about this to have the kind of where, wherever possible we've used the same interviewer and mm. where there is that kind of rapport and a bit of trust build up I think that mm. hopefully can be helpful mm. Absolutely. sorry I did say that the dog would probably zoom bomb this is Kel <laughs> she likes to steal the show <laughs> Um, I've just looked at the time and I've realised how quickly it's gone. We've got about three or four questions that are, have come in. I wonder if, Dave, can you um, do a rapid fire round <laughs> of asking two or three questions and letting people jump on the ones that they, they, they'd like to? Yes, absolutely. So uh, I'll go through three quickly. Uh, first one uh, from Twitter. Were there any BAME researchers in your team Interview, interviewing BAME participants, aiding in therapeutic trusting engagement to open up on their lived, ex, uh, lived mental health experiences and or speaking in their native languages. Uh, the second is from Ben over on Facebook. Uh, and he said, it's an observation that co-production work regarding mental health and the mental health system appears to have an underrepresentation of those who have not been to university and by default are design a near total exclusion of those who are in long-term hospitalisation and are of people with a learning disability. Why do the panel think this is and how can those of us who find ourselves often involved to co-production work, such as uh, himself, create an inclusive mental health co-production movement for the three groups listed above? Uh, and then the last one of this group from Adrian, uh, were there any surprising positive disclosures from individuals with mental health issues during COVID? So who wants to take the first? So one was about BME, 
Another one was about co-production, sometimes being exclusive of, of uni, of only looking at uni grads, and the other one was surprising positives. Telescoping it down. <laughs> we so had five BAME researchers out of mm -hmm. our pool of 13 researchers. So we didn't match people specifically to interviews, but um, mm -hmm. we had them in the team for sure. Okay. Kerry, were you going to add to that? Yeah. Uh Yes, um, on the BMAA one, I absolutely agree with the value of having mm -hmm. researchers with diverse backgrounds. But also I had the pretty interesting experience myself um, when I was talking to an interviewee who had, re who had recently left um, the faith she was brought up in during lockdown and was actually quite glad to have someone to talk to about it who wasn't from her cultural background who felt she felt that I wouldn't necessarily have the same expectations of her so I absolutely agree that having people available is a good thing but also we shouldn't assume that that's what people will want it's not mm. always um, of the um, who gets included in doing research, I absolutely agree. You know, I, I, I'm um, master's graduate, all that sort of thing, and I keep telling telling people, no, stop doing inclusion, which starts and ends with people who look like me. Um, it's not really doing inclusion, um, but then, of course. To, to do inclusion wider, I keep telling people, no, seriously, go stop holding your meetings in fancy central London, go and meet in a street drinkers hostel in Glasgow or something. It means changing the whole process of the way you do research or policy work. And people are often really uncomfortable with that or think it will take time and that um, often, particularly with policy stuff, you're working under a lot of time pressure. Um, it's, mm. it's it's not simple. And I like to think that we could get better at consultation. But I think to do co-production differently, we'd either have to change the whole way we do research, which is a worthwhile project to undertake, but one that's going to take a very long time. Um, or we'd have to um, basically do a lot more training people from different backgrounds, by which time you end up having the same problem with them, you know, being university artic educated, articulate people like me. So, yeah. That's the strange thing. Is I think the most researched group of people on the planet is probably psychology grads. They always do the yeah. research on each other. <laughs> yeah, and, again, and I'm really aware that a lot of, the, sorry, the dog is just going bonkers in the background. She's this is excited. Put, it's a good conversation. I'll put her in the shower, so now she's all damp and it just <laughs> makes her a bit crazy. But anyway, um, yeah, I'm really aware that a lot of the mm. opportunities that I get are basically because I look and sound like a psychologist, mm. to be blunt. Like, mm. And that's problematic and I don't mm. I think have any about, grants. Yeah. <laughs> it's about being aware though, isn't it? And I think as soon as we have these discussions and just have them openly you start to have slightly different choices and you start to make different choices. And that's that's really important. And again, it's that hard to reach group. So, you know, it's hard to reach for you. They're not hard to reach. They're sat right there. <laughs> so I think you've made some really good points there. Dave, is there anything we haven't come back to? Uh, positives. Oh, go on. Yeah. So there were there were some people that, so where, where there were people who were reporting that 
they had really negative impact on their psychological well-being. There were also people who said, actually, you know, I am coping all right with this. So I think we, we've used the, the term Corona coaster when we've been described in some of it, because actually everyone has ups and downs. And some people have reported within the interviews that, yeah, I, I mean, I've been socially isolated and distancing from people and, you know, that I've almost been training all my life just to come to this point of kind of where everyone else now has experienced what life is like for me during COVID. So the, there has been people who haven't been as impacted mm-hmm. and as well people discovering their own coping strategies and resiliences. So there has been positives where people have went, oh, actually, yeah, I really like sewing and I've really got into that and it's helped me deal with my anxiety. Whereas I might not have had that if I was having to commute to next my bed. So there were there were some positives within that and people learning their own resilience. Mm. It's not a I replacement see. for services, but it is no. useful for people to mm. know. Mm. So Dave, can we just come back to you for any any um last things that the panel can have a think on? And then we'll go around and and think about people's final thoughts because obviously we'll be hitting the hour soon. Yes, uh, we've had a comment in, and I think possibly not from someone that's watching it, but someone that's commented on Alan Simpson's comment, who is watching it. uh, And it's from Nuan, and he says, please don't forget those with SMI who are digitally excluded and have never accessed social media. They're living with the pandemic and too many are dying from it. I think an important kind of, uh, you know, addition to what's already been said uh, already. Uh, and I'm sure there's other questions that I've missed in the sort of like 14 different screens that I've got open at the moment. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I think if we return back to the panel for their closing thoughts, probably best. Mm-hmm. So don't worry, it says if you have um, put any questions, we haven't got around to them. We'll all be checking on social media over the next just couple of days and we'll pick up anything that we see there. So can we come to um, to Bryn first, I think, for any last thoughts? Uh, maybe a couple to out there so so one was about um i don't think we heard from any people that they thought men- mental health services were not being careful about infection risk or people were mm. providing safe safe health care but we heard from a lot of people about healthcare being not provided and that not being well explained or feeling quite arbitrary mm. so suddenly your appointments mm. got cut or people were being discharged from the, the wards um and that feels like a something that we really need to sort of follow up and understand. So we know that in some areas, inpatient length of stay and inpatient admissions really dropped. And what does that mean really? Who's What's happening to people who would have normally been admitted or aren't or who are discharged more promptly, you know, is, and I think we can use big data sets to sort of follow that up, but it was something that people were not kind of understanding and finding scary and also finding things like people coming in in full scrubs and face masks on the water kind of very frightening and anxiety provoking things. So, so getting that balance of providing safe, COVID safe healthcare with providing healthcare that is still kind of collaborative and, and helpful for people and, and, and exists is, is one big challenge. And the second thing I think is just um, coming back to the sort of stuff I was talking about inequalities earlier. So I guess it's probably a big ask, but we didn't hear too many examples of really good solutions for these difficult problems and these and I guess the kind of challenge of COVID is and social exclusion and distancing is going to be social distancing is going to be with us for some time to come what can mental health services be doing to provide kind of prompt and innovative ways to address these kind of unequal difficulties that some people are facing really and I think that's the kind of real challenge going forward. 
Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Um, can I come to you, Kerry, next? Think I found the experience of doing research during the pandemic rather interesting. And in some ways, it's something I was better prepared for, for from most people. I come from a public health background. I was kind of been expecting um, major disease outbreaks for years, um, but the practicalities of doing research in one and the emotional impact has been probably more significant than I recognised. Um, mm -hmm. Ended up being sectioned um, halfway through the research um, and not getting sick pay for that time, which is something I'm incredibly frustrated about still. Um, and it's, I think when this is over, I'll, I'll want to be writing something about the ethics of how to do user involvement um, in the pandemic. Mm. Absolutely. Rachel? Yeah, so it's interesting uh, that Bryn pointed out we didn't really hear from very many people who, uh, or anyone that springs to mind, that said that their mental health care wasn't COVID safe. I, I would say informally and anecdotally and based on my, my experiences, I, I certainly have had some uh, where it's felt very not COVID safe. Um, so I think, I think it's probably important that we don't assume that because our 49 participants haven't had experiences, mm -hmm. that doesn't mean that, that everybody who was, say, on a ward uh, felt that their one-to-one mm -hmm. -one nurse was social distancing and wearing a mask properly, for instance. Um, but yeah, that aside, um, I think just the only thing that I wanted to say and realised I'd forgotten to say when I was talking about relationships mm. is that there was also this whole other set of relationships that uh, people using services have with each other. If you're in, say, groups or um, a day centre or even on a ward, um, mm. And that there's a that's kind of qualitatively different as an ex, as a type of relationship to uh, the kind of clinical relationships that you might have, um, and that that's something that's quite difficult to replicate when services move online, um, and that that's again something to kind of flag up for maybe mm. looking into in future. Yeah, that feels like a huge thing actually. You know, you bring it up. Thank you for that. Um, Una? How to follow all that. Um, <laughs> I guess the one thing, I well, I have two points. One is that this is one piece of research and this is the jumping off point for the bigger conversations that need to come from it. So we're not claiming that this research is the answer to everything and this is everyone's experience. It's simply starting mm -hmm. a conversation. And I think that's what's important is that this is a point where we all go, okay, this is how people are starting to experience it. What else is going on out there? Let's do more research and get the voice of the service users at the forefront of this because mm -hmm. COVID's not going anywhere. We're not changing things significantly. Mm -hmm. There's not going to be a massive investment in mental health services. So how can we improve things even slightly? because there's a human cost at the end of this. And that's what's important, as was mentioned in the question there, people are dying. There are people who are being significantly impacted by COVID, the isolation and all those things. And that human side has to be remembered at the forefront. It's not research, it's people. Um, the second point is also that 
one person definitely said this in their interview. Let's stop with the quizzes. No more online quizzes. <laughs> We've all suffered enough. <laughs> My team love an online quiz, a music quiz. It's got it's got brutal over it. There's too many. <laughs> I'll take that on, on board. Honestly, for online quiz over lockdown. <laughs> Dave, is there anything that you wanted to sort of highlight before we finish up tonight? One thing is that I'm hoping that even though some people don't like online quizzes, everyone likes MHTV. Uh, and on that point, I would <laughs> like to... Plug. Absolutely. And it's, it's going to get worse, Nikki. Just wait for this. Uh, obviously, we've had a great conversation tonight, but we've got some amazing subjects planned for the next few weeks, haven't we? Uh, so next week, we're going to be talking about uh, green prescribing and the use of green and blue space to support mental well-being. The week after, we're going to cover the subject of movies and mental health. The week after that, we're going to have colleagues from the Centre for Mental Health to talk about a year in our lives. Uh, and then a couple of weeks after that, we've got uh, colleagues to talk about Star Wars. Uh, so we've got just such an amazing uh, kind of uh, collection of uh, sessions coming up, which will try and rival the quality of tonight's discussion. But, you know, they'll they'll be hard pressed to, to push it. So uh, I, th I think those would be my closing uh, comments, apart from saying, you know, obviously, thanks to everyone that, that's joined in. Uh, mm -hmm. And I always take this opportunity every time I get the opportunity to be in front of the camera. A uh, big shout out to Nikki and Vanessa for keeping yeah. MHTV as the you know the huge quality uh product that we're doing so uh you know th thanks to them too too so there, there's my thoughts nikki hopefully you'll you'll endorse those messages well yeah okay <laughs> <laughs> consider your messages endorsed i think um it's been really interesting tonight we have covered so much we've covered everything from you know how to theory questions to kind of that kind of practical and emotional stuff and actually starting to look at ways forward for research. So thank you very much to, to the research team. It's absolutely brilliant work that you're doing. And particularly um, thank you to Kerry and Rachel as well. So I think coming on and, and bringing service user voice can be quite personally exposing and it comes with a cost, doesn't it, sometimes? And I just wanted to say thank you very much for that. It's very, very much appreciated. So thank you all and good night. Bye.